This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX. That's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for the start of March 2018. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen, about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is an assistant professor of systematic theology at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. Likewise, David, top of the morning to you. On today's episode, we're looking at three topics. We're heartbroken by yet another mass shooting, this one at a high school in Parkland, Florida. In the wake of that event, the surviving students have mobilized. We're going to talk about these students, the NRA, and the Catholic concept of subsidiarity. Next, Dan and I will look at the continuingly complex conversations surrounding same-sex relationships, in particular the ways that the church might wrestle with the dignity and reality of same-sex relationships and partnerships. And in our last segment of the show, we're very happy to welcome our guest, Heidi Schlumpf. She's a national correspondent for the National Catholic Reporter. We'll be talking about the ups and downs of the religion beat in 2018. We also have special bonus segments for all of you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit more bonus audio, an extended discussion or an interview, or even some video. We're working on that. If you'd like to hear them or see them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. This time around, Heidi Schlumpf will be talking with us about her book on the life and work of Elizabeth Johnson. Before we get started, just to remind you that you can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod, that's Francis, and the letters F and X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or a comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing us at FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. We also want to thank our season sponsors, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. They help to make this show possible, so please show them your support and let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. Dan, how have you been? I'm good, David. You're I've back. Been doing well. I'm back. Back. You're back, and you're back on the road. Yeah, yeah. My vacation, my staycation is over now. Okay. Uh, I just came back from Las Vegas, where I gambled absolutely nothing and won <laughs> precisely that. Uh, I was given a parish mission, but it was it was wonderful. Nothing but Pascal's wager for you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Nothing. Nothing ventured. Nothing gained in this case. No, it was a lot of fun. And right before that, I was in Phoenix, Arizona for a board of trustees meeting. And that was good, too. It was nice to be in very nice weather, though I hear you guys had nice weather up here while I was away. But you were away, too. Yeah, I I did a little bit of traveling. And I, folks that heard about the Southwest debacle from a couple weeks ago, I didn't get caught in that, but I I got caught in the tail after that. So 
they didn't have enough de-icer and they shut down all the Southwest flights one day. And then I was there two days later and a huge bank of fog socked in Midway Airport. And so I got caught in that and ended up flying out of O'Hare, which if you know the Chicago area, that's about an hour and 20 minutes train ride from Midway. So I was I started the morning at one airport on the south side of the of the city and then ended up flying out successfully later that day from a north side airport and finally got to my work in Washington DC and that that went really well and I just printed out the draft of my novel. Oh my gosh. It comes to 326 pages and so wow. I'm going through and doing now a line edit and figuring out what needs to be moved where and how to fix it around and and yeah, and and all of that is going really well. So there's an ending. Well, I know how it ends, but <laughs> I will not I will not say right now that the ending is elegant. It still needs a lot of work. The whole thing needs a lot of work, but it's this is a major milestone. Everybody's on the edge of their seat ready for this extravaganza. Ah, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into all of this, we just want to say a lot of people have been writing to us about what they appreciate about the show. And they also, we've had several new people sign up on Patreon. We just want to say, you know, we don't always have the time to respond promptly to that. And we apologize for that. But we want to let you know, we read everything, we talk about it. And we're so thankful that folks are listening, that this is impacting people, and that they're finding value in the work that we do. And especially that you're taking the time to communicate with us. We're going to do our best to try and respond as time allows. We're both very busy. But just we want to let everyone know that has written to us or has reached out in some way or has supported us on Patreon over the last couple months, how much we appreciate it. And I know I speak for you, Dan, when I just say it really makes our day when we get those kinds of communication. Yeah, thank you. And, and please continue the feedback and, and help if you like the program to share it with your uh, friends, family and strangers via social media. Thanks again. So in the past week, as we're recording this, there's been yet another tragic school shooting. And just two episodes ago, we were talking about the number of mass killings that we've had here just this year. I hate that we are bringing this topic up again. And we wanted to maybe give a slightly different approach than we've taken the last time. But with, first of all, just to say that we have been horrified and that our hearts are broken for all of the families in Parkland, Florida that have had to deal with this tragedy over the past week. And like those families, we are praying and agitating and trying to find solutions in public policy that will allow us to get away from this madness. But with that, I, I want to raise some issues about shooting and these children in, in Parkland, these students and the NRA in light of some specifically Catholic ways of looking at public policy. And in particular, I invited Dan to reflect with me on the concept of subsidiarity. And if you've never heard this term before, it's a term that I first became familiar with when I was reading some of the works of Pope Emeritus Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, talking about the notion of subsidiarity. It's a concept within Catholicism that is a little nuanced. And so, Dan, if I stray off of the path of, of correctness here, let me know. But here's what I understand about subsidiarity. If you are making a decision with a group or, uh, or for a public, you want that decision to rest as close as possible to the people that are affected by that decision. So that's one half of subsidiarity is almost a notion of decentralization from a central authority. But there's another piece to subsidiarity, and that is you also want subsidiarity to rest at the level of effectiveness that is high up enough 
in the organizational possibility, high up enough in the organizational structure to actually allow the decision to be effective. So you want to find that balance between it's decentralized enough that it's close to the people that are being affected, but it's high up enough that it actually has the ability to make a difference. Now, first of all, have I understood subsidiarity correctly? I think so. I'm not an expert on this. Actually, one of my best friends is an actual expert on this and uh, has written quite a bit about it. And so maybe we'll have to have him on. He's a professor of political theory. But I, I would say that in general, that's that's correct. It's a concept in Catholic social teaching that way, way, way predates Benedict XVI, goes all the way back to at least Pius Twelfth, and is one of the kind of eight core principles of Catholic social teaching. And And basically, David, what you're describing is right. It's about the kind of the local level, having buy-in and having representation and say, affecting policy and change, uh, policy being the key thing in the lives of individuals. So when you ask questions about government, ask questions about legislation, ask questions about ethics in the public square, subsidiarity prioritizes, like you said, the experience of those most directly affected by it, as opposed to a strict kind of top-down approach. But I need to qualify this because it's oftentimes misunderstood and has been taken out of context, particularly in the U.S. political system, by those who identify with a libertarianism. And that is not what subsidiarity is. Um, Subsidiarity alongside, it, it flows from another key principle of Catholic social teaching, which is the preference and centrality of the common good. Another, in addition to common good, I, I kind of slipped almost into description of another principle of Catholic social teaching, which is the preferential option for the poor. And so top-down approaches are viewed with some incredulity when it comes to what is best for people at their particular lived experience and level, the family level, the community level, at the state level, and so forth. But it is not to be mistaken for a lib- libertarian political view that says we need less government. Catholic social teaching actually says quite the opposite. It says that, you know, government has a particular purpose and that's to protect the common good. Subsidiarity would say that those who would understand what the common good most means in their experience, particularly those who are poor or otherwise marginalized, they should have priority of voice. And let me give a concrete example that I sometimes use when I teach classes at Loyola and other places. So if we look at the history of slavery, slavery was a conflict around the buying and selling of human persons. And there was a conflict at the grassroots level. There was also a conflict at the federal level. And where that plays out now is oftentimes you'll hear about sort of the the rhetoric of states' rights, that somehow states should make decisions at the local level about how their population should want to be. And sometimes I hear subsidiarity get used in a, in a truncated way to support something like what you just said, a kind of states' rights local decision-making. But what we saw in the civil rights era was the realization that states were not making decisions that actually affected the common good. States were making decisions against the common good, and therefore a higher authority needed to step in, in this particular case, the federal government, to help to impose a better way of interacting in these localities than was being exercised by the decisions of these localities. So so subsidiarity is a balance, and it's a, but it's always a balance that is struck with this idea of exactly what you said, justice and the common good and the notion of a preferential option for the poor. Now, why am I raising subsidiarity here in the context of the NRA and these students in Parkland, Florida? Because I, what I see here is a cry of the heart coming out of this tragedy 
And this cry of the heart is being articulated in particular by these high school students. So they're not persons of voting age yet. And yet they have some of them are some of them are. But they've managed to command, at least for the last few days, a national conversation and to be central to that national conversation. And in fact, just last night, as we're recording this, I watched portions of the town hall debate that happened between these students and some representatives from the NRA and Marco Rubio and some other civic officials down in Florida. I was very moved by the articulateness that these students brought to these questions and the fact that they would not let the leaders off the hook when the leaders kind of gave them a boilerplate answer. But I also recognize that these kinds of tragedies are happening every day on the south side of Chicago. These kinds of tragedies are happening in a lot of different places. And the people for whom these tragedies are occurring are oftentimes not articulate. They're oftentimes not white. They oftentimes don't have the kind of access to media. And so I'm wanting to kind of raise a lot of issues here. But one is the notion of when we hear these kinds of cries from people who are directly affected, as Catholics, we're called to listen to these cries and not ignore them. First of all, am I correct about that? Certainly, the listen to the cries. I'm a little confused by the example of slavery and then a comment you just made, uh, not to push back too hard, but yeah. but to raise some questions. I'm, I'm a little concerned about the, the contrast pose that you probably didn't intend, but could be understood, at least as I'm thinking about it. You know, the difference between what's going on in Parkland, Florida, with young people who tend to be white, middle class students who are more articulate than People on the South Side? What, can you what, clarify? What do you mean to say? And I'm sorry, I, mo- I moved fast. And so I, I'm realizing that as I'm saying this and as I'm raising up these students in Parkland, that they do have certain access and certain privilege that other communities don't have. And one of the things that I think is oftentimes important to remember when we are listening to these kinds of questions about justice is that who is speaking and the access that they have to things like this is something that we need to keep in mind. And so I'm wanting to say that as I'm lifting up these these students in Parkland and the very important conversation and this cry of the heart, that there are other cries of, of the heart that should be heard from other communities that maybe don't have the national stage right now. So I'm just wanting to say that this would be sort of an amplifying an amplifying point for multiple communities, not just for the Parkland community. And I didn't say it very well. Yeah, thanks for the clarification. I I think, you know, first of all, let me just say, I really am inspired as well by these young people. I think, you know, as I tweeted the other day, they are really what we might call American heroes. They're taking, and I'm not sure, I'm I'm on the fence about this, and I'm, again, not a moral theologian. So in terms of the question of whether subsidiarity is a good analogy here, and that's all it could be, because it's, it's, its understanding is really in, in a more purely economical and policy-based thing that doesn't exactly pertain to the kind of vocal protest here. I mean, there's certainly a grassroots movement underway, but I think what these young people are representing is precisely that, a representation of what the majority of U.S. citizens, people who reside here in the States, want and see as reasonable, and that there is no no wavering on the part, particularly of the GOP. I mean, and there are some Democrats as well who are so afraid of going up against the gun lobby, the NRA, uh, that they sit by and and allow for these kinds of killings. And, and I think you're right, if I understood correctly, to talk about, you know, we our attention is drawn for a period of time at the national level when there's a mass shooting, when there is particularly when it's in a, a space otherwise considered safe, like a high school or a movie theater. But there are everyday victims of gun violence and that this is a everyday reality and experience for so many people. 
I, first of all, I want to say that I'm very hopeful. I, I think that this is an experience, a work of the spirit. I think it's a, a sign as far as Christians are concerned of what scripture will talk about and what our tradition talks about in terms of the difference between anger in general, uh, which is a normal feeling and, and something to be processed in a given circumstances and what's called righteous anger. And I think these students are moving and they're processing their trauma Many of these students who are speaking out, this isn't just kids who have, you know, got some momentum or something or some kind of online presence. These are kids who were, for some of them, three hours locked in school closets for fear of their life as their friends were being murdered in rooms down the hall. Um, these are kids who whole, whose whole life otherwise will be affected by this experience. And instead of instead of allowing the politics and the, uh, I would say, media in general, which has such a short attention span to pay lip service and brief attention to this this tragedy and then move on to talk about whatever nonsense the president of the United States is tweeting about in typically offensive form, they're saying not this time. And so, you know, in terms of Catholic teaching, subsidiarity, I think there might be something of an analogy here that on the local level, they're taking voice and, and it's the people most directly affected by uh, the circumstances that are speaking out. And so I, I guess that applies there. I'm also thinking about, you know, another element of Catholic social teaching, which goes all the way back to the end of the 19th century with Leo Thirteenth and the right to organize and unionize and the people to speak their voice. This isn't necessarily a labor dispute, but it's a dispute about safety in, in society and what it means to uphold the dignity and value of all human life. Well, and I think that you've just you've hit on a bunch of pieces. So I see subsidiarity as an analogy, and particularly when, when lawmakers are Catholic, to use that as kind of a lever to say, you are not your habit is not to listen to people like this. Your habit is is to listen instead to the people that you have traditionally given access, and that would be the people that fund your campaigns, the people that have some kind of some recognition in society. And so these are people who not only don't have a lot of capital to offer to a campaign, a lot of them are not voters. Nevertheless, Catholic social teaching, this idea of subsidiarity says, but they're the ones being affected, and therefore their cries are legitimate, even if they cannot directly benefit you or your campaign work. And that is why I would make an appeal to Catholic lawmakers that just on the grounds of our shared faith as Catholics, that it's essential that these cries be heard. And that, I can't speak for the state of the soul of Marco Rubio, but I watched him last night Despicable. work really hard to not listen to the very yeah. clear articulations of the heart that were being given. And, and these teenagers deserve all of our respect and support and admiration because unlike professional journalists who are so deathly afraid of being perceived as biased by holding people like Kellyanne Conway or even elected representatives like Marco Rubio, Senator Rubio to account – these young people are not afraid. And and some people will say, and there have been a lot of commentators who have written them off as naive and they'll learn and they'll grow up, but that's the cynicism of many years of uh, being part of the system at play. These young people, and I think maybe there's a witness here of what Jesus talks about in the Gospels about unless you have the heart of a child, unless you have this kind of perspective, not naivete, um, but a kind of constructive innocence that allows you to say, I am not jaded by the system, and I will not tolerate this. I love that phrase, constructive innocence. And I think we are going to see a very interesting pulse beat in the American electorate as these young people, 
become part of the age of majority and begin to enact their their will at the polls, I think that that seeing the organization that they've already brought around these issues, they've already said that they're going to mobilize and they're going to organize. And I'm very anxious to see the positive results that come from that. As a person of faith, I'm conflicted right now because what I want to say is I am keeping these people in prayer. But I also recognize that the rhetoric of thoughts and prayers has become very jaded and very polarizing these days. And so when I say that that I'm praying, and I'm sure that Dan is also praying for the families and all of that, we see that through a lens of the book of James, where prayer without action is not a useful <laughs> endeavor. We pray and we struggle to make the world a more just place and a more more of a place that is like the kingdom that we pray will will come when we pray the Our Father. I think that's right. And the key thing about the Our Father is it's not a prayer that sets off in some distant place, some sort of paradise and never, never land. It is, you know, when does God's kingdom come? It comes when God's will is done so that on earth it might be like it is in heaven. So uh, we continue to support these young people. You know, actions do speak louder than words. And so, yes, we pray with our hearts and our minds, but we pray with our feet and our voting as well. And so I hope, I hope, I hope that this is the last time that we ever have to talk about mass shootings on The Francis Effect. And so with that, we're going to move away from this topic and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Thank you for thank you for being here with us. The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Liturgical Press, and we want to highlight a new edition of a book by Richard Gillardes that is coming out called By What Authority, which talks about the magisterium in the church. And Dan, you've actually used this book in your class. I do. It's uh, it's an excellent book. I used the earlier edition, and I'm very excited now about this new revised and expanded edition. It's not just for graduate students of theology. If you are somebody who has often wondered about how do we make sense of church teaching? What level of authority? What is respect? What is expected of the faithful in response to these respective teachings? I highly recommend this book, published by Liturgical Press, titled "By What Authority." So that's the new book by Richard Gillardes, "By What Authority," and you can find it both on the litpress.org website, and also we'll put a link to it in the show notes for the show. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and as always, I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. And now we switch gears a little bit to talk about something that garnered a lot of media attention, particularly in the social media realm in recent weeks, and that is at the beginning of February, on the occasion of the 10th anniversary of his being made Archbishop of Munich in Friesland, Cardinal Marx, and no, no relation to Karl Marx, Cardinal Archbishop of Munich, gave us uh, an interview, had a conversation that was televised and, and largely reported on, and uh, in which, at first, initial reportings seemed to suggest that he was advocating for the blessing of same-sex marriages uh, in Germany and, and perhaps beyond, that the church could accommodate this practice. Subsequent follow-ups have suggested at the, at the request of the bishop's office a clarification, particularly in the English translations that were, tra that were reported on by uh, certain media organizations in, in the U.S. and in England. That's not exactly what he was saying, at least not in a universal sense, but was perhaps raising this question in response to a prompt of another question of a journalist that 
you know, maybe there is something else that we need to consider in terms of the personal accompaniment of gay and lesbian men and women, and that it might be an issue for individual cases. So, but this raises a bigger question about church teaching, perception of church teaching, church practice, liturgy, blessing, pastoral accompaniment, and so forth when it comes to gay and lesbian men and women. And so, David, what are your thoughts on this? Well, first of all, I think that Catholicism is living in a moment that it has lived in for centuries, and that is when we're talking about marriage, we're talking about a sacramental institution, the, the, the sacrament of matrimony, a calling for certain adults in the church and not for others. But we're also talking about a civic institution. And these two things exist side by side, and they've not always existed comfortably side by side. So you can go down to City Hall and you can have a piece of paper that says that you are legally married, and that entitles you to certain benefits and certain abilities within our shared society, our shared civic space. But you also, that that civic document does not translate to a sacramental document. And the tension here is both of these things, the civic document and the sacramental institution, both reside in the term marriage. And so a lot of the argument, particularly as this has been going on for the last 15 years, is around the idea of the people who would like to have access to the societal benefits of having a legally recognized partnership your children can be have joint cut you can have joint custody of your children property can be much more easily disposed of there's a much cleaner path for any kind of legal adjudication all of those not to mention pensions and other kinds of benefits from social security people dying in hospital visitation exactly all of those things are restricted to people who are not in this legal in this legal institution that we refer to as marriage but in in their desire to be part of those societal benefits they have pushed for marriage, and the church has pushed back saying, no, marriage is a peculiar institution that is only defined by the sole union of one man and one woman. Now, well, and I, let me, yeah. I, I need to jump in here a little bit because uh, a couple things you've said have raised up some need for clarification. Yes. One of which is actually nein in German, okay. <laughs> yes and no. If, if somebody is Catholic and they marry a heterosexual couple, a man and a woman go to city hall and they're Catholic and they get married, the church, according to canon law, presumes the validity of the sacrament of that marriage. And so if somebody wants to have that marriage recognized by the church, the process is called convalidation. Yeah. Radical sanation. It's yeah. not, you don't then do another wedding. You don't then do another marriage. And so it is recognized, and that includes, you know, this is all, it's, it's very canonical. It's somewhat juridical in terms of the annulment process that people know something about or hear about or, you know, may have had experience with. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily, you know, in terms of the practice itself, there's a much closer alignment between civil marriage and in the, uh, the understanding of marriage within the church. Now, whether or not something is a sacrament is another question. The same thing is true, by the way, presumed in terms of if you're not Catholic, but become, you know, Catholic, let's say you're Presbyterian and you're married in the Presbyterian church or something like that. There, there are certain things in terms of matter and form. And, it's, and one of the reasons why even the civil union of a man and a woman can be considered validly a marriage within the, in the Catholic church has to do with the fact that the ministers of the sacrament are the couple themselves. And so in terms of matter and form and intent, a lot of that is fulfilled. You know, they're not under duress and so forth. Now, it may not be witnessed by a minister of the church. That's where the convalidation comes in. 
But in terms of its validity, it's a lot, it's a lot closer than I think a lot of people presuppose. So I, I just wanted to clarify that. The other thing is, so because of that, you know, we take into consideration the history of the theology of the sacrament of marriage. It isn't until really the Middle Ages where the church gets involved in marriages almost at all. And part of that has to do with the decline of uh, the various civil societies, particularly in Western Europe, and that the church is the one that keeps pretty good records. And so you get into this business of an overlap between the the two swords, as it was described in the, in the Middle Ages, certainly after the first millennium, where you have the civil authority and the religious authority represented sometimes by two different kind of realms that oftentimes then bled over one another. And so by the time you get to the Council of Trent in the face of the reformers, you know, when people like Martin Luther raises these questions, drawing from the scriptural witness, what constitutes a sacrament? And he reduces you know, the sacraments to baptism and Eucharist, because those are things that seem to be clearly established by Christ, the Council of Trent responds and kind of concretizes what the medieval synthesis proposes as seven sacraments. So in terms of the sacrament of marriage, this is a relatively late clarification. Now, what you'll see is in, in the theological tradition, particularly the patristic tradition, that the idea of marriage as an institution, if not a sacrament, goes back, people like Augustine will claim, to Adam and Eve. Like as soon as there were men and women, you know, even though there was no wedding in Eden, you know, there is this idea of the institution of marriage. Its sacramental history is very, very complex. So I I hope I haven't put everybody to sleep listening to us. But I think it's important by way of background because oftentimes, and I'm not saying this by way of, you know, setting up anything to say that the church needs to recognize same-sex marriages as sacramental marriages in the church. But I think sometimes there's a lot of confusion around, do we call it unions? Do we call it a civil contract? Do we call it a covenant? Is it a marriage? Sometimes you'll get people who are Christians who object to calling same-sex unions marriages because marriage for them has this heteronormative kind of perspective of one man, one woman. All of this is to say is that it's it's always more complicated than it seems at first, even when we're talking about heterosexual marriages, when we talk about men and women. And so when we start introducing the reality of civilly recognized unions or marriages between men and men and women and women, it just adds additional complication. Yeah. And so the church has not always... and. Listeners, you've just heard how carefully we've tried to line out all of these pieces, and it's taken us 10 minutes. Um, Jeez, our the, time's flying. Yeah, the, 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 church, the church has not always done a good job of, of having good clarification around these issues. And I read several canon law blogs, and I, I was reading one the other day where, and I forget which one it was, but basically the, the commentator was saying, well, we kind of missed the boat as Catholics, and particularly as Catholic canon lawyers. You know, we had an opportunity when civil unions were on the table as a possibility, and we did not push for the possibility of recognizing in some limited way the legality of civil unions for these societal benefit purposes. And because of that, the agitators for civil unions have now pushed to recognize what they have as full marriages. And this commentator was saying, well, as Catholics, we cannot ever recognize that as a full marriage for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, we, we have a problem here as, as the church because we have the fact that society is moving in a direction. And it's moving in a direction of greater hospitality towards these relationships, whatever you call them, these permanent, longstanding relationships that have the possibility of rearing children 
that have the possibility of having the societal benefits that we talked about at the top of, of this segment. But now the, the question is also, you know, kind of what the terminology is around this. And the, the church is wanting to say, because we can't go with you on the terminology, we can't go with you on any of these other pieces. And I, I just see a big mess, Dan. I, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a canon lawyer, and I'm certainly not a theologian who's well-primed to speak in, with any kind of authority on this. I'm, I'm speaking purely as a layperson here. You know, my wife and I have a lot of conversations about this, and we, we sometimes come to one position, we sometimes come to another, but it's a struggle for us. Yeah, and I think it's a struggle for a lot of people. It, it invokes, I mean, this is, again, I'm, I'm a systematic theologian, and this is your background as well, and, and one of the things of our subdiscipline of the theological field is the interconnectedness of all these doctrinal claims. You can't talk about the sacraments without talking about Christology, without talking about theological anthropology, without talking about ecclesiology. You can't talk about moral theology without talking about the human person or anthropology. They're all interrelated. And I think what happens is, and it's only exacerbated by the short atten- shorter and shorter attention spans of our contemporary world, that what's necessary to start understanding what the church has taught in its internal logic, and there is an internal logic to it, whether you yeah. agree with it or not, there's an internal logic. But here's the problem is that oftentimes, A, the attention spans are short and requires more than 10 minutes to describe and to discuss the theology and the intricate interweavings of the theology behind any one of these doctrines, any one of these teachings. But you also have, uh, and I think a hesitancy on the part of church leaders, if they know it, to talk about the internal logic because it's rooted in what we might see as fallible or questionable principles, groundings today. And I raise this as a question because, for instance, when it comes to sexual ethics, the internal logic presupposes things like the good of unity and the primacy of love. That is indisputable and that is central. However, there is also, when it comes to things like sexual ethics in the the Roman tradition, a heavily Thomistic Aristotelian metaphysical worldview that relies deeply on Aristotelian teleology that depends on a vision of the cosmos and of nature. And by nature, I mean both human nature and the natural world and biological processes, which we know to be absolutely untrue. So, for example, Aristotle said that the way that you get a woman is at the time of conception, if a foul southerly wind is blowing, it's likely that what would have otherwise been a normal male becomes a female. Right. Well, and we talk about, you know, Thomas Aquinas uh, adopts that, and this is 13th century science. He talks about you know, the way that you make a human person is that you have homunculi that essentially the, we should say too, I feel like I'm on NPR. I should warn you. We, we are acknowledging the reality of sex. So if you have young listeners that you don't want to hear in this conversation further, you might want to fast forward to our next conversation. Fair enough. But, you know, homunculi, this idea that there are little men, literally in Latin, little men inside the male sperm and that a woman is, you know, is a receptacle for this. And that is basically the fertile ground in which this, quote, seed grows. That's where we get seminal or, or, you know, from or semen seed. And that's just not true. That is not true. And so, I mean, you can't maintaining a hylomorphism that has an understanding of substance and nature that is also tied to metaphysical and scientific views that are just patently untrue is a real tension in church teaching. And so I think one of the things, and there have been very good theologians and, and ethicists who have tried very hard 
to try to think about maintaining essential goods like the primacy of love, the primacy of openness, generativity to new life, the bonding or relationship between the couple and marriage as, as the natural ends, as Gaudium and Spes teaches, while at the same time acknowledging that we can't just repeat what Thomas said, you know, some uh, 800 years ago, because newsflash, it, it's not true in terms of the facticity. It's true in terms of the intention, the intention of the maintenance of love. So this raises, when you start diving into this, it raises some serious questions. Here's the case in point. There's a lot of hand-wringing and contention and an understandably controverted uh, discussions around same-sex relationships and, and whether or not there's a sacramentality to marriage, which, which the Roman church has, has not recognized um, and so forth. But there hasn't been a comparable, and this is something that a lot of religious leaders in the Catholic Church have talked about of late, who are particularly open to considering pastoral responses to the realities of of people's lives. They'll say, you know, you don't shine as much attention on heterosexual sexual relationships. For instance, married couples, newsflash, what's described as intrinsically disordered with regard to sexual acts between men and men and women and women, the same thing is considered in heterosexual relationships. For instance, masturbation intrinsically disordered. Why? Because you're destroying homunculi. It's kind of like, I hate to be so graphic, but it's kind of like every time masturbation occurs, particularly with men in this regard, from, from a Thomas perspective, you're committing the act of, of homicide. You're committing an act of homunculicide, as it were, or you know, to be graphic abortion in this case. The same thing is true when you talk about any kind of sexual activity that is not vaginal sexual intercourse with a explicit understanding of the possibility of implanting semen for the growth of another human person. And so with a narrowly restricted understanding of procreation and openness to generativity as a natural end of the, of the marital act, you, you bind yourself into this corner. And so, you know, right now that's the position we're in. And I think you know, that's one thing that needs to be addressed is that our sexual ethics needs to take into consideration. It needs to be open to conversations and questions. In the end, the internal logic may mandate that, you know, what we basically have in practice needs to be maintained. So I'm not I'm not opposing that outright. What I'm saying is that, you know, I think this a lot of people mistake sometimes the squeamishness of their discomfort around relationships and the realities of human persons that are different from them and take that kind of affect or emotive response about that's oftentimes goes immediately to sexual activity. Well, and they generalize it and they say the squeamishness that I feel about this action is a squeamishness that is in the heart of God. And so they make it this global universal squeamishness instead of something that is much more cultural and much more time bound, as you've pointed out. Yeah. And so, I mean, I I think the question is one of, of theology. When we talk about theological ethics or morality, we talk about theological anthropology and the understanding of the human person. What we have to take into consideration are what are our sources? Do they actually align with reality? You know, for instance, you know, you mentioned slavery in an earlier um, segment. You know, the church for a long time taught that slavery was a natural reality. That, And this comes from Aristotle's notion of what he called there are certain people that are more like, quote unquote, brutes that are natural slaves. And that that was justified and people would proof text citing Philemon in the New Testament or passages from the Old Testament to justify that, you have to then ask questions about the grounding of that teaching of the church. It was a teaching of the church that slavery was okay. We can't overlook that. And so I know there are going to be a lot of people unamused by my introducing something so radically intrinsically evil as slavery, 
but it hasn't always been taught as intrinsically evil. And so I think we need to ask questions about um, what are the, what is the grounding of our teaching? Now that's one thing. The other thing, which brings us back to the issue at hand is what do you do with the lived realities, the pastoral responses to people's experience, particularly their experience of a long-term committed loving relationship whether we recognize that as sacramental marriage or not, the question posed to Cardinal Marx and posed to all of us is, what do you do in response to this? And one possibility is the blessing of this union. And if people get all upset, well, that would be endorsement of this or that would be approval. Well, no, there's a difference between a blessing and a sacrament. If you come to me and ask me to bless your rosary, I didn't just, you know, celebrate an eighth sacrament of whatever. I don't even know how to conceive of this, but it wasn't a baptism. It wasn't, I didn't ordain your rosary, Right. Likewise, you know, I've heard it said that there are blessings and there is a big book of blessings for so many things. And it's true. I can bless, you know, boats. I can bless classrooms. I could bless, you know, new cars that, that gets asked, bless homes. But, but for some reason, people take offense at the blessing of a couple who have committed in a public way their love for one another. I, I, I have a hard time getting particularly offended by that. And and part of that is because I believe that, you know, God smiles upon loving relationships and loving relationships take many forms and they may not ever be recognized as as, uh, sacramental marriage. But I think the challenge that's posed before us and you talked about, you know, society moving in a direction. I don't think it's just simply these radical, you know, um, these radical relativistic times that needs to push the church. I think what we learn from the world, what we learn from human experience, which is one of the four core sources of theological reflection, human experience, is for us to constantly pursue that fides quarens intellectum. We profess faith in a God who is love, who has created us for love. And like the development of doctrine around things like religious liberty or the, the sinfulness of slavery and racism and the rest, I think there may be uh, an opportunity here for us to think as church to reflect on our sources, both with regard to theological ethics and morality on the one hand, but also doctrinally, how we understand the human person. So, well, I guess what I'm advocating for to sum it up is, you know, I I think what this raises for me is the need for further conversation and and to not be, not shy away from that. Well, and that is probably a good place to leave it for now. And so we will definitely come back and talk about this topic again. But Dan, thank you for bringing this this topic sort of onto the horizon. I, I hadn't been thinking about it other than just kind of the reading of the blogs. And so the chance to talk to you about this, particularly the Aristotelian and, and, um, and Thomistic aspects of it, that's really helpful to me just as a layperson to be hearing about this. So thanks again. Hey, always my pleasure, David. Okay, so we'll be, uh, we'll be back in just a moment with our interview with Heidi Schlumpf. Hey, this is David. This episode of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by our friends at Franciscan Media. They're seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, Ronald Rollheiser, and, uh, oh, who's this on the list? Yeah, Dan Haran. I think I've heard of him. Your purchase or donation helps Franciscan Media continue to fill the world with the Franciscan spirit. Head over to franciscanmedia.org and check out features like The Saint of the Day, a short biography and reflection of the day's saint delivered to your inbox every morning. And when you're there on the website, I'm sure that you're going to see a lot of stuff that you'll love to purchase. When you do, let them know that Frank sent you. If you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, when you check out, you'll save 25% off your first order and you'll let them know that their message is getting out through the show. 
We appreciate it very much. Welcome back to the Francis Effect Podcast. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We're very pleased this morning to be joined by Heidi Schlumpf. She is the national correspondent for the National Catholic Reporter. Before that, she was a, a professor working at Aurora University. And before that, she was the managing editor at U.S. Catholic Magazine and has a long history in journalism and a long history in communicating Catholic ideas to to mass audiences. We're very excited to talk to her today about just the, the changing state of Catholic publication and, I guess, religion reporting in general in 2018. This is a, a question, Dan, that just preoccupies us continually, doesn't it? Oh, my gosh, yeah. <laughs> and, and neither of us are professional journalists, so we rely very heavily on our friends who do this for a living. And it's it's just a great honor, Heidi, to have you with us to get a sense of what it's like for you in 2018, in the age of Trump, in the age of increasing even ecclesial polarization to do the hard work. And yet at the same time, and maybe you can say a thing or two about whether this is your experience as well, feeling like you're the target, you know, that a lot of people blame journalists uh, and, you know, uh, that it's that somehow you're responsible for all this at the same time. <laughs> and so Heidi Schlumpf, welcome to yeah. the Francis Effect. Why well, thank you for having me as a listener and fan of the show. I'm really excited <laughs> to be here. So one of the things journalists do today is listen to podcasts and I listen to yours. Well, first of all, I, I kind of want to ask you about that. So when you say that you listen to podcasts, what do journalists get out of the kind of amateur journalism that we're doing here? Is this actually a useful medium for people that make a living at this stuff? Sure. Well, as a journalist, you have to have your eyes and ears out and your feelers out for all kinds of news. Um, I can give you a concrete example of how this podcast led to a story for me. <laughs> Please, I'd love to hear that. Um, so uh, it was right around the time that the Me Too was exploding last fall, and uh, I wanted to do a story about that as a person who's interested in women's issues and coming from a feminist background. Um, and I was looking for the Catholic angle, but at the time, especially right at the beginning— there weren't very many Catholic organizations or institutions or leaders talking about it. So one thing that I do is listen to podcasts on my daily exercise walk, and I was listening to you guys, and Dan, you talked about it. And so I said, well, there's a source for me. I can start. Um, and I did some calling up of some other feminist theologians who had been tweeting about it, and Dan ended up in my story. I love it. I love it. Well, and so tell us a little bit about your background. What was it that got you into the religion beat? How did you get started in this line of work? Oh, that's okay. Well, I can shorten this part up a little bit if you want. But I will tell you, uh, just, just a week or two ago, I was at a university on the north side at Northeastern. Woodward and Bernstein were here. And I went to go see these two uh, journalistic heroes who, of course, broke the Watergate story. And I had read that book in college, a student at uh, University of Notre Dame, which had influenced why I wanted to become a journalist. I had already taken a writing class and liked telling stories. That book really showed me how journalists can influence, um, have an influence and change the world in a, in a way that really appealed to me. So uh, when I went up after the uh, talk and brought my copy of All the President's Men that was from, I won't say, from the very old book, I uh, asked <laughs> them to sign it. I said, I'd read this book 30 years ago. And so it was really exciting to see my journalistic heroes. The way I ended up on the religion beat is I was working at a daily newspaper in California, uh, kind of a features reporter, and 
literally somebody in the newsroom said, hey, Schlumpf, you go to church. How about you go cover this religion story? There were other people in the newsroom who went to church, but I guess I had been open about my faith. And so I started covering a couple religion stories on the side. And I found it to be a fascinating beat. There's both positive stories, talking to people about their faith lives and how it impacted them in positive ways. But it has all the excitement and conflict and uh, breaking news of hard news as well. So I uh, did not initially become a religion reporter, but when I moved from Los Angeles to Chicago, I decided to try to specialize in religion journalism. How has that changed for you from the time when you came to Chicago and you got started? Have you noticed anything you know that's different about covering religion whenever that was? We won't name it some, some years ago, as you put it, <laughs> to now. Well, it was the 90s when I came to Chicago, and my first job was as a diocesan newspaper reporter for what was called the New World back then, now the Chicago Catholic. Um, I worked under Cardinal Bernardin as a reporter at the diocesan newspaper. So a lot has changed, obviously, since the 90s, the rise of social media, and as you said, the increased polarization in our culture and in our church. So both of those you know, influences have affected Catholic journalism, just like they've affected the church more broadly and journalism more broadly. So one of my things that I say is that Catholic journalism deals with both the positives and negatives of journalism that journalism is facing in media and the church. So we've got some pros, but a lot of cons that are affecting us in both sides. And it seems that, you know, working for a publication like National Catholic Reporter, or I think of uh, some other independent Catholic journalism outlets, I think of like the magazine, the Weekly Commonweal, um, those that are not under sort of an ecclesiastical authority. So, for instance, you know, one of my former employers, America, where I was a columnist for four years, is owned and operated by the Society of Jesus, by the Jesuits. And so even though there isn't a um, kind of USCCB influence like like you have with the Catholic News Service, there is some sort of kind of connection to this I guess you would call uh, institutional oversight. One of the, I think, real great maybe gifts, and correct me if that's not the, your perception of it, of, of NCR is that there is more flexibility in terms of asking hard questions. But that comes with some pushback as well. I don't know if you can talk about your experience as, as, a, as a reporter for NCR and, and that kind of push and pull. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, National Catholic Reporter isn't an independent journalistic outlet, and there are very few of them in Catholicism. As you mentioned, Commonweal is another. Yeah, we're still part of the community. We're still part of the church, and we're practicing Catholics. And so there's that sense of being insiders in that respect. But we were founded 50-some years ago with that intent and purpose. Let's do independent real journalism. Founded in 64 is how long we've been around. So, Yeah, there's a tension there, but really that's what I think is really exciting about being able to be a real journalist. So I had a lot of freedom when I was diocesan newspaper working under Cardinal Bernardin as well and got to do some really great journalism there. That's not true at all diocesan newspapers, and things have really changed for diocesan newspapers over the the past 20, 30 years. But NCR is pretty much still doing a lot of independent journalism, just having to do it in a more sort of cutting-edge social media multimedia way. One of the things that I'm very interested in, and that's part of the reason why we started the podcast, is the effect that the papacy of Pope Francis has had on Catholic media. And I imagine that probably NCR would be in some ways a canary in the coal mine for that, because when hard conservative 
forces are active and ascendant in the church, NCR is going to have a real backlash, I'm, I'm imagining anyway. But ha- what has been the effect of Pope Francis's papacy on the work at a place like NCR? Yeah, so I kind of say that two men are responsible for my return to journalism. Um, I was working, as you said, as a professor for about 10 years out at Aurora University, and I had been writing a column for NCR for the past 10 years, but not a full-time employee for them. And it's Donald Trump and Pope Francis who made me want to come back to journalism. It's one thing to teach journalism to young people, and there's something really exciting and important about that. But I was itching to be out there covering two huge stories, you know, and one— is the papacy of Pope Francis. So, you know, it's exciting to have a pope who seems to be trying to take the church in a a fresh direction and in a direction that a lot of our readers can identify with. He also has stirred up some of the polarization in the church, which is something that we cover as well. I mean, part of what makes something a news story is conflict. So people sometimes criticize journalists for covering conflict, but everybody getting along is not a news story. You have to have news values, you know, prominence. Uh, something has to be local. Something has to be uh, happening right now. But it also has to have some level of conflict. And that story is worth covering. You know, what we try to not be is instigators of the conflict, but coverers of the, of the conflicts that are going on out there. I, I was going to ask about, uh, in terms of the, the this idea of conflict, NCR was really, in my opinion, for thinking about how to respond to things like anonymous trolls and commenters. I remember some years ago, and this would have been probably while you were working as a columnist, but not full-time employee of NCR, you may recall the, and maybe you've had some personal insight into the conversations around the, the stopping of the comment section for a while in NCR, which there was a period of time where I was a more active blogger and blogged pretty regularly and found myself kind of inspired by that bold move where As somebody who has undergrad training in both theology and journalism myself, I was always inclined to create a space where people could share their opinions, even if I disagreed with them and feedback. But there got to be a point where I was so frustrated and and I saw NCR made a decision at one point to just shut it down because it becomes so toxic and so, so, so violent in some ways, verbally violent. So I'm wondering, you know, if you if you can talk a little bit about those kinds of conflicts today and what it means to be a journalist, particularly of religion in a media age, a, a digital age, and, you know, how you negotiate some of these things. My understanding is that NCR brought back the comment section. Is that correct? Well, right now our cr- comments are currently turned off. Oh, they are. But okay. it's less of a strategic decision, as you've talked about, which we've done in the past, as it is a practical one, which is the company that we had contracted with to be our comment moderator well, went out of business. So oh. we are currently not having comments because we're searching for a better way to do that. Moderating comments is a very time-consuming pr- procedure because, and which is why we moved eventually to something where people had to register in order to comment. That said, I can just talk more broadly. I mean, I think one of the great things about social media is that it is a two-way conversation, that people who are readers, or what we used to call, formerly known as the readers, can be part of the the communicators and they communicate back and with amongst themselves as well. But like you said, sometimes, especially given the polarization in our culture right now, we that devolves into something that's not healthy or even safe. So it's something that people, you know, all organizations and even individuals who use social media are having to face. How open can I be? How much 
back, you know, back talk do I allow from the people who are following me? Um, I think it's important to still have that conversation. And we've tried to replace comments, at least temporarily, with a couple other things. So our editor has started saying, hey, if you want to comment, send me an email, like a good old-fashioned letter to the editor. And he's putting those together and doing like a little letters to the editor section every Friday online. We also know that some commenters, I believe, formed a Facebook group where they could discuss NCR articles. And a couple of of people from our newsroom have joined that group. It's small. Um, What is that like? What kind of conversation? Who who are these folks? You know what? I'm not in the group. And as you said, one of the problems with moderating comments is you it's a time suck. You can get in there and get into these you know, long back and forth disagreements, usually between just a couple folks. And, you know, often they're arguing about something that wasn't even in the original article where the comments are located. So as a columnist, I rarely read the comments. I mean, I often would peek to see if there were some or if there were, you know, and if there were hundreds or thousands. But often, again, they weren't discussing what I had written about in my column. It had just devolved into women's ordination or abortion or whatever. So I can't really speak to what's going on in that Facebook group. I could try to find out for you. But, <laughs> no, that's okay. But just the idea that you can't stop it, that people will find another outlet to have those conversations, that we're used to that kind of freewheeling communication in this day and age. Well, I mentioned to you before we got on air that my wife used to be an editor at U.S. Catholic, and she would come home and she would talk to me about some of the comments that she would get or that her colleagues would get at U.S. Catholic. And... I just wonder, in processing that with her, it was clear that it, it took, she, she was strong, but she, it took a toll. You know, people telling you continually that you're not Catholic or not Catholic enough or that you're, you're damaging the faith or something. And I imagine that NCR, because of some of the positions that it takes editorially, gets a lot of those kinds of comments through whatever means they come through. And I'm, I'm, if you're willing to talk about it, I'd be very interested in how you spiritually, personally, or how you've observed your colleagues deal with that kind of onslaught, for the attack of people saying you're not properly Catholic, you're not Catholic in, because I imagine our listeners sometimes may get this too. They may get people telling them that they're not Catholic in the right way. So if, if you're willing to share, it would be helpful for me and for our listeners to hear how you deal with that on a spiritual or a personal level. Hmm. Okay, that's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about it. And it reminds me, you know, as we're going to talk about later about Elizabeth Johnson and when she was attacked for not being appropriately Catholic, how painful that was for her because she had dedicated so much of her life to the church. She was being attacked by the hierarchy, which is a little bit differently than being attacked by Joe Schmo in the comments, who's not even using his his or her real name. (laughs) Anonymous trolls. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I'm not sure that it does affect my spirituality. I'm pretty confident in my relationship with God and with the church and what some anonymous person online is going to say doesn't really affect me. Now, check with me in 10 years. Maybe I'll be more beaten down by it. But like I said, sometimes I don't read it if it's going to be a personal attack. What does get me is if people attack my children. So I have written about my kids in the past as a columnist and I've definitely stepped back from doing that now that I'm a full-time reporter and um, and have gotten off some social media where I used to be more open about my kids to protect them. So um, the mama bear in me, I guess, comes out of, when it comes to that. I don't know. I think you have to, if you're a journalist and if you're putting yourself out there as a communicator these days, you have to be a little bit tough-skinned about, about that and not let it affect you. 
Yeah, that's great advice, especially I'm somebody who of late has been under uh, increasing attack. It's not a new thing, but uh, there are certain blogs and online social media organizations, one of which has gotten a lot of attention, which I will not name, but is located in across the other side of Lake Michigan in Michigan, who for some reason is continually using my image and likeness and uh, a name to promote themselves and to uh, uh, say some really terrible things. So I appreciate that uh, perspective that, you know, the tough skin is important. And and yeah, it'd be interesting to continue to have these conversations. I imagine as a columnist, that probably was more of a an experience and and it's wise as the ex- expression goes and as you said don't read the comments <laughs> you know well let me just say this though about the the vitriol that happens with the back and forth between some of these extremes is i do think it presents our church in a pretty negative light so with all of the polarization and the personal attacks that are going on in other media we sure could be a beacon of see those christians how they love one another if we were not devolving into that same thing. So I think it's unfortunate when that happens. And I I don't want to highlight that too much, although it's my role as a journalist to find, you know, bring light to things that are hidden or that are, are happening that people should know about. But I do think it makes us not look so good as a church when, when we're not any better than the Breitbarts or something out there. I think that's a really good point. I- on that, I'm thinking about, you know, the switch from being a columnist for 10 years, going back into the kind of the straight beat journalism. You know, how's that experience been for you, including, you know, the shift from talking about your perspective, your opinion, your uh, insight to remaining journalistically objective or editorially objective? You know, there's no such thing as absolute objectivity, obviously. But have you how have you found that transition and have you been surprised by anything? Well, yeah, I was just going to say the same thing you just said, which is there is no such thing as pure objectivity. And certainly as journalists, we try to check our opinions at the door and see where the story goes. So it's happened more than once that I've said, hey, I'm going to do a story on this. And then when I got there, that wasn't exactly the story that I found. And so you have to go where the facts take you. You can't impose your opinions or your preconceived ideas about what you think the story is onto what it's going to be. That's that's a journalistic skill. I don't really miss being a columnist. I was a columnist for almost 10 years. And in many ways, I kind of said everything I had to say. If you have to write a <laughs> column every month for that long, um, that has, you know, some parameters, you know, I'm sure I have a few columns left inside of me, but it was it was refreshing to go back to the straight reporting beat. And like I said, especially at this time. So I mentioned earlier, there were two men who brought me back into journalism, and one was Pope Francis, but the other was Donald Trump. And I was a person who was pretty shocked and upset about the election of Donald Trump as president and very concerned uh, a little over a year ago about what it might mean for certain policies that I believe in strongly, especially those that affect uh, poor people. And so it's been very gratifying to be able to, in my nine-to-five job, be part of somebody who is bringing to light some of the things that are happening that are what I think pretty negative and to connect them to Catholic faith. So why should Catholics care when the children's health program was not being renewed? Why should Catholics care about this tax cut policy that's going to hurt working class and poor people? Why should Catholics care about health care? So that's a lot of what I've been writing about. And while my personal opinions are sympathetic with the angle that I'm taking, it's it's pretty much straight news reporting. So where is National Catholic Reporter on the continuum? Because I know that every publication has had to deal with this. 
the the transition from traditional print media to the more kind of digital and socially based milieu. I don't have a better word for it, but I know that other publications struggle with this. What is the proper balance? How do you navigate these new waters? How do you navigate these new audiences? Can you give us some insight into how NCR has been thinking about that and what they have put into place and what may be still on the horizon to come? Sure. Well, and again, I speak as a relatively new full-time employee for NCR. I've been with them for six months, but as a longtime reader and subscriber and, like I said, columnist, um, NCR is digital first. And that's a move that we made, gosh, I guess it's been about a year or two ago, but but we, I write my stories never knowing if they're intended for print or not. Uh, we write for the web, which is updated all day, every day. So we're and I think news organizations that want to be have an impact today have to be that. So it's all about getting the story, getting it quickly, getting it up on the website. That said, our print product, which comes out every two weeks, the newspaper has still has a sizable number of subscribers and is still very important. But the print paper uh, takes stories from the web and puts them together in that print edition that comes out every couple weeks. There might be stories in the print edition that didn't run online, especially in special sections, but we are solidly digital first, and that's what you need to be these days. Over the years, I've I've been interviewed for those special sections. It's always frustrating because I'm like, I want to see what it what it says, what it says, and I have to wait and wait and wait and then go and actually look at the library or look at one of the religious communities that, that has it. Often many of our friaries subscribe to the print edition. But I have to say that I'm very grateful for the online presence first and in real time. You know, I appreciate your pieces that come out. I appreciate Josh's stuff coming out um, as he's traveling with Pope Francis, as he's reporting from Rome. I I just think there's an excellent team you have in terms of international and national reporting. And you're usually way ahead of, you know, a lot of other uh, media organizations. That said, the digital Catholic journalism scene has really kind of exploded. Exploded is probably too too much of an exaggeration, but has grown. So there is the the CNA, which is not to be confused with CNS. There is NCR, not to be confused with NCR. And I'll say what these acronyms mean in a moment. There is Crux, which is not what it used to be, and it is something else, and I'm still not sure what it is. Crux is in flux. Crux is in flux. <laughs> oh, I like that one. Yeah, we're, we've got a whole line of things here. Uh, and then you have, you know, the more non-denominational or quote-unquote secular outlets and wire services like RNS and and so forth. So for for those of our listeners who don't know the alphabet soup that I'm going through, CNA is Catholic News Agency, which as I understand it is owned by EWTN or or some subsidiary thereof. You have CNS, which is Catholic News Service, which is generally an independent journalist, journalism organization, wire service, However, it is owned by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. So there have been conflicts within uh, that arrangement, which we may or may not be able to talk about. There is NCR, the National Catholic Reporter, for which I is uh, a national correspondent. And then there's NCR, the National Catholic Register. And then there is Crux, which was the online religion arm of the Boston Globe until that was uh, not profitable as its own entity and, and subsequently has been purchased, sponsored, floated by the funds of the Knights of Columbus under the kind of oversight of a former NCR National Catholic reporter, employee, and and, uh, correspondent, which is uh, John Allen Jr. 
And then there's Religion News Service, which is RNS, and there are many other. <laughs> well, and there's, there's also RNA, the Religion News Association, and then there's the Religion Communicators Council, all of which are, you know, the alphabet soup continues. That's Catholic true. Press Association. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As well. yeah. Associated Church Press. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know what? I read them all. And I, I think there's a lot of good journalism coming out of uh, a lot of those organizations. Uh, that said, as you pointed out, none of them are completely independent. We are independent and we do have a board of directors and we have advertisers. And like I said, we're part of the Catholic community, but uh, we do independent journalism, I think, in a way that, that other folks can't. You know, generally, it's good. The more voices out there, the better. And so a journalist is for free speech and I would never want to try to stop any of these organizations or even individuals who choose to start their own you know, publications, as it were, or websites. I don't want to name some of the more egregious offenders here, but you also have the rise of these sort of right-wing blogs slash social media Catholic organizations, and they're players too. I mean, when I went to the bishops meeting in November, they're in the media room along with you know, me and the person from the Catholic uh, News Service and somebody from America and somebody from Crux was LifeSite News oh, reporter, yeah. just like any other reporter. So they're out there, they're writing stories. They're not always using the same journalistic principles that I was taught in journalism school and that many, most journalists would, would agree are important principles. And, but they're out there and they're having an effect. And often we're reporting about them because we have to respond because they're out there uh, sort of making news. Well, Heidi, there's a lot more to say, and I hope that you'd be willing at some point to come back and join us again. But for right now, I just want to say how much we appreciate the work that you do and especially the, the encouragement that you've given to us as we got started. Thank you for being here today. You're welcome. It's been fun. And uh, for for our listeners on Patreon, we're going to have an extended segment on this episode where Heidi is talking to us about her book on Elizabeth Johnson. So please stay tuned for that or sign up and tune into that. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. 
If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes from last season. You can check those out. Thanks for listening.